Chapter twenty two of A Charming Fellow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Charming Fellow by Francis Eleanor Trollope. Volume three, Chapter twenty two. The big room at the Blue Bell was full. It was a room associated in the minds of most of the people present with occasions of festivity or entertainment. The archery club balls were held in it. It was used for the exhibitions of any travelling conjurer, lecturer, or musician whose evil fate brought him to Whitford once a strolling company of players had performed there before some fifteen persons and several dozen cane-bottomed chairs there were the tarnished candelabra stuck in the walls the little gallery up aloft where the fiddlers sat on ball nights and the big looking-glass at one end of the room muffled with yellow muslin and surmounted by a dusty garland of paper flowers now the wintry daylight coming through the uncurtained windows made all these things look chill ghastly and forlorn people who had thought the bluebell assembly room a cheerful place enough under the bright illumination of wax candles now shivered and whispered to each other how dreary it was the coroner's jury had been out to duckwell farm to view the body and to look at the exact spot on the bank where it had been landed from the boat and to stare at the willow stump to which it had been found fastened by the clothes and they had returned to the bluebell inn to complete the inquiry into the causes of the death of castalia errington a great many witnesses had already been examined their testimony went to show that the deceased lady's behaviour of late had been very strange capricious and unreasonable almost every one of the witnesses including the servants at ivy lodge confessed that they had heard rumours of young mrs errington being not right in her mind they had observed an increasing depression of spirits in her of late obadiah gibbs's evidence was the strongest of all and his revelations created a great sensation he described his last interview with castalia at the post-office and left the impression on all his hearers which was honestly his own namely that on castalia and on her alone rested the onus of the irregularities and robberies of money-letters at whitford he did his best to spare her memory he sincerely thought her irresponsible for her actions but the facts as he saw and represented them admitted of but one conclusion being come to algernon errington's appearance in the room elicited a low murmur of sympathy from the spectators his manner of giving his evidence was perfect and nothing could have been better in keeping with the circumstances of his painful position than the subdued yet quiet tones of his voice and the white strained look of his face which revealed rather the effect of a great shock to the nerves than a deep wound to the heart of course he could not be expected to grieve as a husband would grieve who has lost a dearly loved and loving wife but there having been on somewhat bad terms and castalia's notorious jealousy and bad temper made the manner of her death all the more terrible poor young man he was dreadfully cut up one could see that but he made no pretences put on no affectations of woe he was so simple and quiet in a word he was credited with feeling precisely what he ought to have felt his statement added scarcely any new fact to those already known he had not seen his wife alive since he parted from her when he started for london to visit lord seeley who was ill he corroborated his servant's testimony to the facts that castalia had wandered out on to whitmeadow about nine o'clock in the morning that he had been made uneasy by her strange absence and that he had gone himself to seek her but without success in reply to some questions by a juryman as to whether he had gone to london solely because of lord seeley's illness he answered with a look of quiet sadness that that had not been his sole reason there were private matters to be spoken of between himself and his wife's uncle matters which admitted of no delay could he not have written them no he did not feel at liberty to write them they concerned his wife he had mentioned to lord seeley his fears that her mind was giving way as lord seeley would be able to affirm 
a letter found in the pocket of the deceased woman's gown was produced and read it had become partly illegible from immersion in the water but the greater portion of it could be made out it was from lord seely and referred to a painful conversation that he had had with his niece's husband about herself it was a kind letter but written evidently in much agitation and pain of mind the writer exhorted and even implored his niece to confide fully in him for her own sake as well as that of her family and promised that he would help and support her under all circumstances if she would but tell him the truth unreservedly nothing could have been better for algernon's case than that letter instead of being the cause of his disgrace and exposure it was obviously the means of confirming every one of his statements implied as well as expressed it showed clearly enough first that algernon had given lord seely to understand that his wife laboured under grave suspicions of having stolen money-letters from the whitford post-office secondly that he algernon believed those suspicions to be well founded thirdly that symptoms of mental aberration which had recently manifested themselves in castalia were at once the explanation of and the excuse for her conduct this letter which if castalia were alive to speak for herself would have been like a brand on her husband's forehead for life was now a most valuable testimony in his favour algernon's hard and unrelenting mood towards his dead wife grew still harder and more unrelenting as he listened to this letter and remembered that castalia had threatened him with exposure and had resolved not to spare him nothing in the world but her death could have saved him from ruin even supposing that she could have been cajoled into promising to comply with his directions she would not have been able to do so she was so stupidly literal in her statements a direct lie would have embarrassed her and then at the first jealous fit which might have seized her he would have been at her mercy lord seely's letter showed a strong feeling of irritation almost of hostility against algernon it might not be recognizable by the audience at the inquest but algernon recognized it completely and felt a distinct sense of triumph in the impotence of lord seely to harm him or to wriggle away from under his heel algernon was master of the position he appeared before the world in the light of a victim to his alliance with the seelys there could be no further talk on their part of condescension or honour conferred he and his mother had lived their lives as persons of gentle blood and unblemished reputation until the honourable castalia kilfinane brought disgrace and misery into their home in making these reflections algernon was not of course considering the inward truth of facts but their outward semblances it made no difference to his indignation against the pompous little ass who had treated him with hauteur nor to his satisfaction in humbling the pompous little ass that if all the secret circumstances hidden and silenced for ever under the cold white shroud that covered his dead wife could be revealed before the eyes of all men lord seely would have the right to detest and despise him lord seely had not treated him as he ought he was firmly persuaded of that and as he measured lord seely's duty towards him accurately by the extent of all he desired and expected of lord seely it will be seen how far short the latter had fallen of algernon's standard the seth maxfields gave their testimony as to how the deceased body had been carried into their house how they had tried all means to revive her and how every effort had been in vain and she had never moved nor breathed again the two men who had rescued the body from the water and the carpenter who had brought the news to ivy lodge repeated their story and corroborated all that the maxfields had said there only remained to be heard the important testimony of david powell he had been so ill that it was feared at one time that the inquest must be adjourned until he should be able to give his evidence but he declared that he would come and speak before the jury that he should be strengthened to do so when the moment arrived and had opposed a fixed silence to all the representations and remonstrances of the doctor on the morning of the inquest he arose and dressed himself before mrs thimbleby was up 
albeit she was no sluggard in the morning he had gone out while it was still dark into the raw foggy atmosphere of whitmeadow and had wandered there for a long time on returning to the widow thimbleby's house he had seated himself opposite to the blazing fire in the kitchen staring at it and muttering to himself like a man in a feverish dream nevertheless when the due time arrived he entered the room at the bluebell to give his evidence with a quiet steady gait his appearance there produced a profound impression a stranger contrast than he presented to the whitford burghers by whom he was surrounded could scarcely be imagined not only were his bodily shape and colouring different from theirs but the expression of his face was almost unearthly there was some subtle contradiction between the expression of david powell's sorrow-laden eyes and brow and that of the mouth with its tightly closed lips drawn back at the corners with what on ordinary faces would have been a smile but on his face being coupled with a singular pinched look of the nostrils and a strained tightness of the upper lip it became something which troubled the beholder with a sense of inexplicable pain almost terror as he advanced along the room there was a hush of attentive expectation during which dr evans the coroner curiously examined the methodist preacher with grave professional eyes after a few preliminary questions to which powell gave brief clear answers he said i have been brought hither to testify in this matter i am an instrument in the hands of the great and terrible god he works not as men work in his hand all tools are alike what can you tell us of the death of this unfortunate lady mr powell asked the coroner quietly you were the first to see her struggling in the water were you not and you made a gallant effort to save her she struggled but little she went to her death as a lamb to the slaughter nay as a victim who desires to die powell spoke in a low but distinct voice broken and harsh indeed compared with what it once was but still with a soft tremulous note in it now and then that seemed to stir deep fibres of feeling in the hearts of those who heard him in such a tone it was that he uttered the words as a victim who desires to die and tears sprang into the eyes of many from sheer emotional sympathy with the sound of his voice you're of opinion then mr powell said the coroner that the deceased wilfully put an end to her own life no you think that she was not in a state of mind to be responsible for her actions she was murdered said powell in a distinct grating tone which was audible in every corner of the crowded room End of chapter twenty two